The text for this afternoon is the parable of the unforgiving servant as we read it. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever had someone make you angry? Maybe they took a stab at your parenting skills. Maybe it's a business deal with a fellow church member that went sour and relations were cut off. Maybe it's something they accused you of, shattering a reputation that took decades to build. Maybe it's something even worse. Have you ever looked at that person and said, I want them to pay? Maybe you've been hurt so deeply that you've even said, I don't feel like forgiving my brother. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven. It's just not fair to ask me to forgive him. And yet Christ calls us to forgive. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most difficult things that Christ calls any of his people to do. And yet, there it is in front of us. Forgive one another from the heart. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I bring you the word of God as summarized under the following theme and points. Since our Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven us, he commands us to forgive from the heart. And we'll look at three things. First of all, the command to forgive. And then second, the foundation of this forgiveness. And then finally, the response to this forgiveness. Our Lord Jesus Christ, at the time of this passage, is in the town of Capernaum on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Immediately before our passage, he's been lecturing his disciples in particular, although there were doubtless others around. He's been lecturing them about what to do if your brother sins against you. Most people, if they were greatly offended, would just cut the offender off. Jesus, on the other hand, gives several chances to such a brother. First, he says, you must approach him alone. If he doesn't listen then, take one or two friends. If he still refuses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even then, that is when you treat him like a heathen or a tax collector. But that being said, outreach must still be done to the heathen and a tax collector. Now, Peter is disturbed by this. He thinks that this can be abused. And because of that, he comes to Jesus to figure out exactly what the limits are. Lord, he says, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, it has to be understood that on the surface, Peter's intentions aren't exactly bad. He's being generous as far as the rabbis of his day were concerned. The rabbis of his day said people only had to forgive three times. They based this off of passages like in Amos, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And in Job, behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. From the, these passages, they saw that God will forgive someone three times to bring back his soul from the pit. Four times or more, God punished the evildoer. And so the rabbis worked on a three strikes and you're out system. Now, Peter is being more generous than these men. 
He understands the intent behind Jesus' teachings with regards to warning a brother. And so he decides to work with the number seven. Now, the number seven is often connected to covenant and forgiveness in the Bible. But Christ says that's not the point. The whole question to how often and when you must forgive someone points to a deeper problem. It points to an attitude of, I don't really want to forgive. You'll do the steps, you'll forgive people, but eventually you reach a limit and that's enough. After that, you want to make them pay. The problem with such an approach is that you're still thinking quantitatively. Peter was looking for a number that he could use. After people had forgiven X number of times, they would no longer need to deal with this brother or sister. Their burden of responsibility was lifted. Now they would be free to simply snub that person. They could ignore them in public or walk away and avoid dealing with them. They've done their duty and no more is required. Jesus says, that's wrong. Christ is trying to teach his disciples to forgive completely, an infinite number of times. As such, he responds with the words, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. With these words, our Lord is making a deliberate contrast. Do you remember Lamech at all? Not Lamech, the father of Noah, but Lamech, who had two wives, Ada and Zillah. He was the one who was descended from Cain. And he boasted to these wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This cruel man was boasting and that he was better at taking revenge than God was at avenging Cain. His point was not that he was going to slap someone 77 times if they slapped him once. No, Lamech's point was that any wrong done to him would be repaid with a single-minded drive. Nothing would satisfy until he had ruined or killed the other person. Jesus, on the other hand, is turning that sentiment on its head. He is teaching his disciples that they must pursue forgiveness with a single-minded drive. Forgiveness is not something that you say with your mouth so that you can check off a box. Yes, I've forgiven three people today. I'm doing pretty well. No, it's an attitude of forgiveness and a willingness to do so that must be maintained. If you do not have this attitude already prior to being sinned against, how can you truly forgive if that person does come to you asking for forgiveness? Now, Jesus doesn't say this lightly. No one had greater reason to take revenge than him. Growing up away from palace halls, he wasn't given the glory that was rightfully his. People rejected his message. They scorned him. They accused him. They once even tried to throw him off a cliff. And then finally, they crucified him. They crucified him. But Christ, with the great love with which he loved his own, he bore the pain of that suffering. He had a bigger goal in mind. He didn't care about personal gain during his lifetime. 
He looked ahead to the salvation of many souls which would bring him the glory. There was a much bigger store. There was a much bigger prize in store. The Lord doesn't want to make us pay. Rather, he took the pain and suffering of on himself that payment requires. In his infinite love and mercy, he bore the shame and bitterness of the cross in order to make us his own, to make us brothers and sisters in his kingdom. What glory! We can look to our royal king who laid down his glory. He stepped down from the heavens and became incarnate. He who commands us to forgive, he doesn't do this idly. Instead, he commands us to look to the foundation of our forgiveness. In order to demonstrate exactly what he meant, our Lord launches into a parable. He said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. In this time, it was common for rulers to call their underlings to account. They would speak with the people who took care of different aspects of their kingdom and see where they were at. Ideally, these servants would bring back a favorable report. But no sooner has this king started than a quaking servant is brought in before him. Seeing the amount of money that this servant handled, it's likely that he was a very powerful official, perhaps a satrap or a governor. He is terrified. He's mismanaged the kingdom's funds to a horrible extent, and now he owes the king 10,000 talents. At this point in the parable, you might be drawing a blank. 10,000 talents? I assume it's a pretty big amount because that king is pretty unhappy. Well, you're right. 10,000 talents was an enormous sum. Let me give you a bit of an idea of what it meant to Jesus' listeners who had been standing around. According to Josephus, in the time of Jesus, 600 talents was the sum total of all taxes collected in Judea, Edomia, and Samaria combined in 4 BC. These were three provinces which were definitely not at the bottom end of the Roman Empire. They might have been somewhat barbaric for Roman tastes, but they controlled all of the land-bound trade between Egypt and everything to the north of it. And so this amount would have been staggering to Jesus' listeners. Their jaws would have dropped. But let's bring it into today. Let's say that the average family income for Canadians is a thousand bucks a week. It's actually a little bit more than that for the family. Now, break that down into five work days and you get roughly $200 a day. Let's say that's your denarius. One talent is 6,000 denarii, and so 10,000 talents add up to 60 million denarii. Multiply that by $200 and you come up with a number, uh, with a grand total of $12 billion. That's right, $12 billion. This servant owed more than some countries do. Does that give you a bit of an idea of the shocking nature of this debt? Now, as per custom, the man's Lord commands him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had. This was common in the ancient Near East. It's 
it's, it's clear that selling the servant and his whole household will never fetch a high enough price to pay off that incredible debt. But the idea was to pay back as much as possible and to offer a deterrent for any future, future abusers of the system. They didn't have a debtor's prison, and so this is what they did instead. Now, something is better than nothing as far as like, this king would be concerned. The man falls down weeping. He's absolutely shattered. He begs his master, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. This is a lie made out of desperation. The servant here has made a promise that he is impossibly able to keep. The situation looks seriously grim from the perspective of Jesus' audience. Jesus is making a point. We are that servant. In our day-to-day lives, we don't tend to think much of this. We don't realize how big of a debt we are raising up in the eyes of God. After a day's work, we go home satisfied with ourselves. We don't realize how condemnable our swearing was when we hit our hand with a hammer. We don't reflect on how much it grieves God when we slander a difficult customer when we're doing landscaping, even just a little bit, in order to get more sympathy at the front office. We don't think about coarse joking that sometimes happens at the job site, or the shortness of the wife at home with her husband or the backtalk of your kids to your parents, or elevating your weekend or vacation by making that the ultimate goal of your day-to-day work. All of these things, and countless more, add to make our debt increase. We have debt upon debt upon debt. But there's more. Our position is so much more grim than that. Because God requires perfection from us. That'll do. Might be okay in some situations, but it simply won't cut it when it comes to God. And even when we are able to do what God commands us, that doesn't add up in our favor. Christ says in Luke 17, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, Come in at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. That's right. Even when we reach perfection, doing all the things that we are commanded in God's law, we can only say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so day by day, our debt increases. And it increases at a tremendous rate. There's nothing we can do to diminish it in any way. Does this make you weep, brothers and sisters? Do you feel that great burden weighing down on you? And yet we have the audacity to stand before God and say, have patience with me and I will pay you all. That's a natural inclination, isn't it? To try and make up for a bad day by doing a little bit of extra Bible reading or something more. And yet God looks at us in our wretched position. And he says, go. 
your debt is forgiven. The Lord doesn't take revenge. The Lord doesn't hold out. He doesn't say, okay, I've forgiven him, but I want nothing more to do with him. No, he's freely and fully forgiven us. Our sin was against the infinite majesty of God who can't stand the sight of it for even a moment. And at great cost, he forgave us. He returned us to the fold. The forgiveness of such a tremendous debt would have been astonishing to Christ's listeners. How can this be? How could that king allow such a great debtor to walk free? In our case, brothers and sisters, it's because our king is the one who came down and paid the debt with his own life. Our judge stepped off the bench and he went to prison instead. Christ's sacrifice was enough to wipe out the debts of all who believe. You, you yourself were bound for prison. And now, thanks to the work of your Savior, all you must do is look to him and you are free. You were in a really bad place, but the debt, your debt, has been forgiven. Your relationship with God is reestablished. This amazing message is what we celebrate with Lord's Supper this afternoon. This is the sweet, sweet reality that is ours today. Christ's sacrifice, which we see symbolized in the bread and wine, that is what is ours today. That is the payment for the great debt. What an amazing thing this is. It really reflects on the character of God, doesn't it? God has indeed shown judgment, but for his chosen and beloved people, he's shown so much more. As we read in James, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But we also read mercy triumphs over judgment. How true this is in the light of God's relationship with us. Isaiah cries out, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's the grace of our wonderful and loving God. Now our question is, how do we respond to this? Jesus Christ continues in his parable. Having enjoyed the kindness of the king, the servant went out from there. However, he didn't last long in his newfound freedom. Seeing a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, he grabs him and he begins to choke him. Pay me what you owe, he demands. In Christ's day, this was legal. Under Roman law, a creditor had the right to literally seize a debtor by the throat and drag him before the judge. But this was rarely used. It goes to show the special cruelty that this servant was willing to show. Penny for penny, this servant must have what he feels is rightfully his. 
The second servant falls to the ground, crying out and begging, have patience with me and I will pay you. You can probably imagine the first servant being used to responses like this from his underlings, thinking, I've heard that one before. No, he mercilessly throws him into prison until he should pay his debt. Now, some translations suggest that 100 denarii is comparable to a few dollars. That's not accurate. It might be a pittance compared to what the servant owed the king, but it's not insignificant. And this is actually an important point. Let me explain. Take a look at our calculations before when we were looking at $200 a day for our denarius. Now, considering that 100 denarii is 100 days wages, we multiply 200 by 100. We're looking at $20,000, a significant part of a year's income. This one servant owed the other servant a lot. So, why is this important? Brothers and sisters, sometimes someone can sin against you in a serious way. I'm going to digress from our passage for a moment, but this should be dealt with. If you are that person and you have sinned against someone, you owe them a significant debt. You do not have the right to demand forgiveness from them. You've lost that right. Any forgiveness granted to you is sheer grace. And so you can't hold up this parable and, uh, in front of them and try to force their hand. This parable is between them and God and not between you and them. Your task is to come to them with a truly repentant and contrite heart and be willing to face the consequences, all of the consequences. That's your calling as a Christian. That being said, sometimes someone can sin against you terribly. It may cost you your reputation, a significant portion of your income or more. They owe you a debt and you want to make them pay. That's what Jesus is demonstrating with the actions of this unforgiving servant. He was owed a debt and he was going to make this other servant pay. Even so, you're called to be willing to forgive that brother or sister. You don't have to corner them if they don't ask for it and say, I forgive you. But you are called to be willing to forgive from the heart so that the moment that they come to you, you can let it go. That's the natural outworking of a forgiving attitude. The reaction of this servant to being released is pretty reflective of his state of mind, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's terrible when someone can go out from before the Lord cherishing such feelings of pride and bitterness. They forget their own guilt and humiliation. You do it. Every one of you. I do it too. We have our moments when we're so angry that just for a moment, we forget our own guilt and humiliation before the Lord. And we harden our hearts against those around us. We are angry with them and we want to make them pay. Maybe it was many years ago for some of you. But I'm sure many of you remember that feeling. But then there are those who go even further than this. They forget the great size of their own debt. 
They forget the incredible pardon which was granted to them. And they aren't even reminded of all that by the pleading and tears of the person in front of them, so similar to their own before their Lord not too long ago. That memory only returns to them in the final hour, the hour when it's too late. It's selfish to demand undeserved forgiveness, but it's also wicked. Christ is showing here that it's also wicked to refuse a truly repentant person who is asking for forgiveness. But even more than that, though, God is saving us from compounding our sorrow. It's quite possible that that person who sinned against you has moved on with their lives. They are living in a relatively unburdened way, and by refusing to forgive them, by having rage welling up inside of you every time you see them, and by refusing to speak to them, you're only burdening yourself. It's no longer them anymore. They don't remember. But you're destroying yourself from the inside out. And God wants to spare us from this sorrow. Listen to his voice instead. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. That is the essence of the Christian life. Christ has done this for you. He has overcome evil with good for you. Now you are called to go and do that for your neighbor. Perhaps by the grace of God, some of you haven't had someone sin majorly against you. But consider the little things in your relationships. After a fight with a fiancé, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, or sibling, do you clam up and not talk about the fight anymore? Do you hold a grudge without clearing the air? If there is anything which stands between you and God, brothers and sisters, go and reconcile. Jesus Christ said that even if you're doing something as sacred as bringing an offering before the altar, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Hurry and be reconciled as quickly as possible and seek reconciliation from the heart. If you don't, if you hold a grudge against someone willingly to leave them in torment and to teach them a lesson, then you can be assured that it will be noted. In the parable, when the fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. They told the master, and he calls that servant to account. He says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. If you are that person, you don't want to hear those last words of Christ. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now this doesn't run counter to our understanding of Scripture. The question here is not whether or not we can fall after we've received the gift of salvation. 
Rather, the actions in response to the offer of the free gift of grace show whether or not we've taken hold of that free gift of grace by faith. Because a genuine believer has a genuine love for God, and he's willing to try and show true compassion to his neighbor. So remember this, kids. Next time you get into a fight with one of your siblings, I'm sure most of you have experienced it. Perhaps after some screaming at the other and some swing of fists, your, your mom pulls you apart. You're pretty angry with your brother or sister. That person has irritated you. And they deserve everything that's coming to them. But mom doesn't understand, or she doesn't care how you feel at any rate. She says, say sorry to your brother. Not really feeling it, but like it, you scowl and you say, sorry. Say it like you mean it. Okay, you smile and you say with a bit more enthusiasm, sorry. Deep down inside, you might not really be sorry, but even so, you're willing to say the words. And then your mom turns to your brother and says, forgive him. You, the brother, might not really feel like it, but you might not feel very forgiving at the moment, but you're willing to let the matter slide. However real your feelings are, your mom is teaching you an important lesson. Let mercy triumph over judgment. She's teaching you that the bare words are not enough. True grace and charity needs to be involved. You need to forgive willingly delighting in reflecting to others some small portion of the grace that's been shown to you. Let mercy triumph over judgment. Of ourselves, brothers and sisters, we can't find the strength for this kind of forgiveness. You might say, I want to forgive. I have said the words, but it's so hard. I'm still so angry. I don't want to be, but I am. If you genuinely struggle with this, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. It's not as if only those without sin can come before the Lord. We don't come to church to declare that we're without sin, righteous and perfect in ourselves. No, we seek our lives outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all of our sin. But even more than that, he's lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He is perfectly, perfectly forgiven in our place. So when we turn to him in faith, we are acknowledging our many sins and shortcomings. We don't forgive with such depth of heart as God requires. Yet by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are sorry for this. We are truly sorry for this, and we desire to fight against it. We truly desire to forgive according to the command of Christ. And we can be assured that our struggle, our struggle to forgive, will not separate us from the love of God. Through the death and suffering of our King Jesus Christ, we ourselves receive forgiveness, even for our unforgivingness. Remember that when you're celebrating the Lord's Supper this afternoon. There was a great cost that came with that. 
every drop of blood and sweat was wrung out for the forgiveness of your sin, even your unforgivingness. That's what you see when the bread is broken. That's what you see when the wine is poured out, representing the body and blood of our Lord. His, God's wrath was poured out on him, poured out in full in order that those who believe might stand forgiven before the throne of God. Amen.